0: Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. Uh, just read verses 1 through 2. I, I really was thinking about reading all the way through verse 11, but, um, but I think uh, we're just going to read the first two verses. And I encourage you to go ahead and read the rest of the chapter this afternoon or this week as you're uh, thinking about these things, as the sermon follow up comes out, um, to consider the broader, um, the broader story here that Titus or Paul is telling. Titus, but this is what we come to, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, um, Remind them, that is the church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's not difficult to see uh, in our society that we as a country have grown in its despisal of God and his word and his ways. We're facing evils of all sorts from the breakdown of families to increasing sexual depravity to the murder of unborn to the insistence that foundational matters like marriage and gender are simply social constructs that need to be left in the past uh, coming before our eyes and into our ears uh, incessantly every day through news reels, through podcasts, through uh, TV shows, um, through all sorts of ways. We are hearing repeated reports or examples of hateful, disgusting, licentious, debauched and brutal events and decisions and plans and intentions. Along with the vitriol of hate-filled, disgusted, fed-up comment sections, um, if you've ever taken the time to read comment sections, and the divide in the country is seemingly as wide as ever, and it's not only in our culture as a whole, but it's growing in the church as well as a dividing point among the followers of Jesus regarding how to respond. We've we've tried, um, imperfectly, but we've tried as pastors to be purposeful in addressing cultural issues along the path of these last number of years. We've spent time on Sunday mornings speaking about and against things like abortion. We, we'll do it again next week when we have um, sanct- We we would spend time considering sanctity of human life Sunday. We've talked about uh, race uh, over a period of time. We've talked about gender just recently. I have provided a forum on of the gospel and race throughout the whole year of 2021. We continue to do the same things as is appropriate, especially as it comes forward in a text. So we're coming into Genesis in just a short period of time, and there will be some things in the first part of Genesis where we will have the opportunity to speak into marriage and speak into gender and sexuality and whatnot. We strive to communicate straightforwardly with some element of courage regarding what we believe God's word says about these things. We strive to hold to those beliefs with steadfast biblical conviction. And we've also taught along the way, repeatedly, that while we hold to those biblical, foundational, truth-oriented convictions, we must do so with grace. And we must do so with patience with one another. And with this world that we live in, whether we face One another face to face, or if it's on social media or other forms of communication. Now we're significantly grateful for the desires that exist in our church to see truth spoken for um, in this culture, in families, in school systems, in in uh, communities like ours, and in the country. Um, To be a voice against injustice, to be a voice against immorality, to be a voice of redemption and renewal in all those places, and we agree as your pastors that we need to be a people that engage with the culture that we live in with grace-saturated courage and straightforwardness and steadfastness and not shrink away from it. Now, this is not a message that's going to cover every possible angle or issue, but it is the Word of God that was spoken to Titus by Paul in a very unique situation. It turns out it's not so unique. It's the condition of man on the island of Crete. Back in the day, he was instructing him, Paul was, as a pastor, in how it was that his people in the church in Crete should live in light of what they believe as they engage the wicked society that was around them in their day. For, for Titus, this was a tough, tough place to pastor. You might imagine it was a tough place. It, it, it takes kind of what what we have here and kind of highlights it and then shrinks it down into a little island where there was all just all that Pressure. In fact, in Titus 1.12, um, he says this. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, uh, that's, that's, that's not a great island, right? It's not the island life. It's, it's far away from churches in Asia Minor and Greece, and Paul knows he's going to need help, this Titus, this young guy. So he needs help. He's going to write him a letter. In chapter 1, he tells Titus, how to you know what to look for in elders in the church, and how to how to how to bring leadership in the church. Chapter two, he transitions the uh, to Christian living and areas of teaching that he speaks uh, that he's supposed to speak about. We covered some of that on December eighteenth, if you might remember that. Um, and then finally, in chapter three, Paul takes aim at the Christian's responsibility amid the difficulties that are. Um, around them in their immediate mission field. Titus 3 tells us about the followers of King Jesus. And while, again, we could have read the whole chapter, or most of the chapter anyway, studied the whole chapter, we're only going to consider these first two verses because there is just, frankly, so much there. Um, There's seven distinguishing characteristics of a child of the king, of one who follows the king Jesus. And I'm utilizing that term rather than cultural or rather than um, like a cultural-minded Christian. I'm calling, I'm repeatedly saying followers of King Jesus because he truly is our king. As Christians, we are citizens of a different country. So we that king is the one whom we are held accountable to ultimately. So, so that's why I'm emphasizing this fact that it's, it has to do with those who are followers of King Jesus. These seven distinguishing characteristics about Christian conduct amid what was certainly a wicked evil culture in Crete is, is directly in, in line with, to, to some extent, perhaps a greater extent, perhaps a less extent. I don't, I don't really know. The reality is the in ever increasingly world we live in. Culture like ours today, um, anti-generally speaking, uh, anti-biblical, extra-biblical. And so we want to know, okay, what does it look like for us to engage culturally? Paul tells Titus in the first two words of our text, remind them. The original word for remind is this active, present, Kind of be continually reminding. Be continually reminding them of these things. Don't hold back. He says a little later on, um, uh, be careful to do this. Be careful to teach this. Make this like this needs to continually be being reminded in the church. Because we are prone to kind of fall off or fall away from this kind of thing. And so he's saying remind them. That is continually remind them of these truths that are characterized the life of one who is a follower of King Jesus, who lives in a society like ours today, the first point um, that I want to make, the first character trait uh, that we'll build on one another as we go, followers of King Jesus are to be characterized by submission. Now, if you're taking notes, these are these these will just simply be in the sermon follow-up. But but just as you're tracking, you know, just be be. Be thinking, okay, this is not just submission and nothing else. It is submission as one piece of a, a list of things that all go together. So stick with me. Don't get lost in any one specific point. Followers of King Jesus are to be characterized by submission to position one's life under the authority or guidance of another. And the reality is that this command from God to see people submitting to earthly authorities Most of the authorities in God's word that he speaks of in these places are just not great authorities, right? They're not good people. They're not good things for the most part aren't happening. He says routinely that his people need to submit to earthly authorities and it's not hidden in some sort of obscure pages of scripture in the middle of some sort of prophetic thing that you have to kind of dive into and do some sort of extra study in. What we hear repeatedly throughout this book is that God is sovereign over the affairs of men, and he expects us to position our lives under the authority or guidance of those leaders. Romans 13, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2, number of Old Testament texts, the Gospels, Acts, all over the place. The Lord knows our natural tendency is to look for a way out of the submission by somehow concluding, well, I would submit to them, but they're not I would do that, but, but they're submitting to one kind of leader, but not another kind of leader. But, but none of the biblical authors give us this way out. Followers of King Jesus are to wholeheartedly submit as a way of life because we are Christians, and that's exactly what Christ did when he walked the earth. Walking in humility. So, so how do we submit? Now, check your heart here. In your heart. I would venture to say, if you're like me, you're like, hold, hold on, hold on for a second. You really? Yeah, really. So, how do we submit? Second point: followers of King Jesus are to be characterized by obedience. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. The, the Christian life is truly a life marked by humble, trusting. Obedience. We are to obey our parents. We are to obey our teachers. We're to obey our judges and elders and policemen and business owners and government officials and every other authority we find ourselves under. The, the reason that this is the case is because it stems from what we believe that this book speaks of specifically that when we obey our authorities, we are obeying Scripture, and when we obey Scripture, we are obeying our King. his rule and his reign. Of course, the only exception to this rule is when our rulers and authorities command us to sin against God. We're not obligated to assume a submissive position if the authorities require us to do something that God forbids or they forbid us from doing something that God requires. It's the primary reason why we chose to follow the governmental COVID guidelines whether in agreement or not with them. Their, Their demands of us were to wear masks or to do whatever, did not keep us from proclaiming Christ and him crucified. Um, Did not keep us, for the most part, at least, from meeting together. At least on paper and in statements, these things didn't apply to churches. We're in a remarkable country. That did not happen around the world. If the government orders us to sin, though, then we are forced to disobey and not go against either the direct word of God or our conscience. And while the country is becoming less and less friendly and fair as it pertains to Christians resisting what's against God's word and or our consciences, we still have the opportunity to respond in more ways than simple blind obedience or willful rebellion. Sometimes you think that there's only two options here. Well, there's, there are more options. When we see abuses of power, it is right and true and good and biblical to speak out against that sin. We have to open our mouths. And we can do so by sharing with our representatives, right? We can, we, can, we can peaceably demonstrate and let our voices be heard. We can do things in num- numerous ways. Speak out against that sin publicly in a, in a way that is appropriate. But consider what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, he says, love the brotherhood, fear God and then what are those last three words to, to, to a people that lived under um, the brutality of Nero honor the emperor it, it's, it's, it's crazy but it's the word of God For the followers of King Jesus, there is a way, there has to be a way in some manner to still truly honor our leaders, not just by lip service, not just by saying, well, yeah, I kind of agree, except in all of my life, I don't honor the emperor. Even the bad ones, still honoring our leaders while refraining from slandering them or speaking badly about them, and at the same time, respectfully, graciously, and straightforwardly calling them out for their sins and legal abuses. And there's plenty to go around with that. Today, in the Mediterranean country that our overseas partners serve in, if you speak out against the current government, you're in danger of fines, you're in danger of prison, some sort of jail time or prison time, and you're in danger of, if you're an expat, getting kicked out of the country. In our country, we don't even get fined, I think, for the most part, anyway. Maybe there's situations but that you all know of, but... I don't think we even get fined for simply speaking out against our leaders' abuses. Some of the things that people say about our leaders publicly um, in a foreign country would just get them placed in prison, but in our country, not not so. Freedom of speech can, can be a wonderful thing. It's also a very frustrating thing at times, but it's a wonderful thing. And so as long as we don't break the law, we need not to remain silent. We can and we should speak against sin because that's what Christians do. We stand for and share truth as, as those who follow King Jesus in his kingdom, as exiles in the land, but we do so respectfully, we do so graciously, we do so honestly, and we do so trusting our king unreservedly. Not acting out of fear or trepidation, but out of inherent trust in the king who is sovereign and in control of all things, whom we live for, whom we follow, whom is worthy of our entire lives. Additionally, when we see abuses of power or are recipients of abuses of power, it's okay to seek justice, right? We have the privilege of seeking justice, and we know there's lots of injustice that's done, but we get to seek justice nonetheless. As followers of King Jesus, we should expand every legal means we have to change in some way the political landscape, And biblically, we should object when our country's laws are not being followed. We should um, object when uh, our country is going down a certain road and we need to appeal to the law or appeal to God's word for correction in some manner. Jesus did it with the religious leaders. Paul did it with the Romans' leaders on multiple occasions. But in our country, we have so many more options than than Paul did in Rome or in, in Philippi. We can, again, peacefully protest. We can contact our various local, state, and national representatives at any time. We, we vote our leaders in and out of office. These are all perfectly acceptable legal and biblical means given to us in our response to any kind of government action, but especially government action that is wicked in any way, either by speech or by action, as long as we do so legally and respectfully, as we'll get to in a moment. Now, how bad would it have to get for us to involve ourselves with some sort of civil disobedience. Consider the story of the midwives at Moses' birth as they feared God and didn't obey Pharaoh. And to not obey Pharaoh, you know, at risk of death. well, They feared God and they didn't obey him. They were commanded to do something that God had forbidden, namely to take the life of innocent people, so they obeyed God rather than Pharaoh. And God was with them, right? And so we saw, we see the exodus happen. We see the people of Israel and we see Jesus coming out. It's just this amazing, miraculous story of intervention because of, I I hate to say our salvation comes from civil disobedience, but they were commanded to do something and they didn't do it because it was against God's law. Consider the story of the three young men in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stand there, they're told, you bow, or else you die. You get thrown into the fire. And they're like, I guess I'm getting thrown into the fire. And of course, we, see that, we read that story, and it's a remarkable Sunday school story that needs to get out of Sunday school and, and fire us up in our lives to follow Christ with, with joy and with steadfastness and with grace. Consider Daniel, who defied the edict to not pray to anyone but Darius. And he prayed to God. Daniel knew he must obey, and so he knew then whom he must defy. Consider Peter and John, when they were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And they just said, um, yeah, it's "Like Yeah, we, we, we just can't, we, we have to obey God, not man. Why? Well, because Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'll be with you wherever you go. If we're commanded to sin by the government in any way, we're obliged to disobey them out of obedience to the Lord. But, but currently, we have other means to pursue justice. Currently, we have other means to speak out against sin by contacting, again, our reps, or perhaps by being involved in local government in some manner, so we can work to enact change from a place that's similar to a guy like William Wilberforce, who... You know, help helped stop the slave trade in England. We're we not like the persecuted church around the world who has to defy their wicked governments just to meet to do something akin to what we're doing this morning. If it came to that, certainly we would do that. We would not cease meeting together. We would find different ways to meet together, different means of, it, uh, of ways to do this. Um, none of it comes without a cost. We would be misunderstood, misrepresented, we would be mocked and blamed and become an enemy of sorts, but if this happens, may it be because really we are defying a government or a person or whatever who has some sort of authority over us generally, but in this situation, they're calling us to sin, that we must do this or And we must always choose Christ. So with all that said, the one thing we cannot do in all of this is disobey our authorities. From whatever side of the aisle. Unless we are commanded to sin. So as Paul encouraged Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient Third point. Followers of King Jesus are to be characterized by intentionality. He continues, verse one, remind them to be ready for every good work. There's an intentionality that's there. It's a command to be purposeful, deliberate, sincere, as we love others by seeking their good. Even in the case of our defiance of an evil command to sin, even in that, there's still this this sense of preparing good, preparing a life of good for others. This isn't just like an angry outburst of defiance. It is for the good of those people who are on the other side of the situation. This love that is to characterize followers of King Jesus stands in direct contrast to the attitudes of the false teachers on Crete in verse 16 of chapter 1, who, it says, they are unfit. For any good work. These are uh, these other people that Paul is speaking of in the first chapter of Titus had a profession of faith in God that their lives failed to match that profession, as their works are in fact detestable and disobedient, as it says. But in contrast to them, genuine followers of King Jesus should ever be mindful of and prepare ourselves for, to be intentional in, and grow in readiness for every good work work that God has prepared for us. We expect and we look for opportunities to do good, to joyfully thank the Lord for giving these opportunities to us in even a country like ours that is declining rapidly, whether to people in the church or outside the church, whether friend or enemy, whether in a free country or a dictatorial regime. The world is full of lost sinners who are bitter and angry and rebellious and ready to blow up people on all sides of politics, people who are confused about sexuality and gender, and even people who would prefer for Christians just to be put away. They might not realize it now, but they need the one who truly follows and heeds King Jesus as they submit and obey to rulers and authorities and are intentional in every good work, especially that work that we come to now in point four. Followers of King Jesus are to be characterized by encouragement. He continues to tell Titus to remind them to speak evil of no one. Now, if you're like, if you're like me, you read, read things like this and you think, well... Um, You just kind of read them in in the sentence, and you kind of get over it, and you get to the next thing. But think about that. Speak evil of no one. No exceptions. It means literally do not blaspheme anyone. Do not speak in a disrespectful way that demeans, denigrates, or maligns. can, Can you imagine what it would be like in our society if really... Just Christians spoke evil of no one. The redemptive nature of what that might look like. Over the last number of years, we've seen an increase in this kind of speech against our leaders and other people, and it's always been the case, of course, but throughout human history, but in our day, it just seems overly rampant and even exists among those who profess faith in Jesus, and it just should not be friends. When we slander others, when we demean, denigrate, or malign others, not just people in positions of authority, but including people who are in positions of authority, um, when we slander them and when we demean them or denigrate or malign them, it may feel right, it may feel just, it may feel appropriate, but it is not. Whether in public office or in the passenger seat of your car, your wife, your husband, your kids, your friend, the person you can't stand at school, your brother, your sister, and, and the president and the senators and the Congress persons, and the mayor and the governor. When, when we slander others, when we demean, denigrate or malign others, no matter who they are, We fail to live like our king. In fact, Jesus would equate the motivation of our hearts as on par with actions of significant violence. Like anger equals murder. Lust equals adultery. Certainly the wicked and brutal effects of policies that are foundational in the democratic platform are worth speaking out against with truth and grace. And just as certainly the wicked and brutal effects of demeaning and denigrating speech that's become so very commonplace in other political parties is worth speaking out against with truth and grace as well. Both things are destructive. At the very core, you know, you know that when you are spoken against, how damaging is that on your very soul? This is why one of the things, why our king says, do not speak evil of anyone. Now let me address just a couple of things from scripture that people have wondered about regarding this kind of speech. Some some would say, well what about Paul? Well, like Paul was like super harsh in Galatian Galatians and he just tells these false teachers who are preaching a different gospel if there is a different gospel uh, these guys that were saying, circumc- Jesus plus circumcision, he's like, you guys need to go and emasculate yourselves. Pretty harsh. What about, what about Paul? Or, or what about John the Baptist, who was harsh and said denigrating things to the religious leader of the day, Herod, calling, or, or the Pharisees? Um, and he, in particular, went after the Pharisees really harshly. The, these examples for the for like the the vast majority of these examples if not all the examples had to do with specifically calling out religious leaders calling them what they were not people who were in the church not brothers and sisters not people Who were just in the culture, but they were straight up those who taught a false gospel among the people of Israel and in the church that either the sacrifice of Jesus was unnecessary or was insufficient for salvation. And even when Jesus flipped the tables with significant anger in the court of the Gentiles, he did so because of the religious leaders, because the religious leaders were ruining the opportunity for the Gentiles to get into the Gentile area of the temple to be able to come to prayer and get to know God. And there's all this crud all over the place, all sorts of animals and all sorts of stuff that animals do all over the place, in their place where they were supposed to be praying and seeking God. And, and, and it was not the people that he was upset with, primarily it were the shepherds of Israel that were wicked and, 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 uh, and evil, and they were keeping the people from actually coming to God. And it infuriated him righteously. So these are these are those examples as far as far as I'm concerned, anyway, those examples. So I, I don't like going to those examples as reason for why we should get all bent out of shape and angry and, and forceful in our speech. I, I, I think that we must keep a close watch on our tongues. When the Bible says to speak evil of no one, I think the plain reading of the scripture, in whatever language you study this in, is speak evil of no one, including politicians. Disrespect and slander have no place in the Christian life, and again, 100% destructive. Such behavior makes us look bad, which is not even the biggest deal. The worst part of it is that, infinitely worse, is that it brings reproach upon the name of Christ. All of a sudden, well, that must be what Christ is like, Building others up and countering negative drivel with encouragement, think, believe, is the better way. It's the way of Christ, and one thing we're being reminded of this morning. Point five, followers of King Jesus are to be characterized by peace. Remember, keep all these things in together. So submission, obedience, and and, um, uh, what was the third one? Intentionality. Thank you. Just all these, all these things are just like building on one another and we're getting into these areas of encouragement. Now this next one is peace. Followers of King Jesus are to be characterized by peace. He says specifically, he doesn't use the word peace, but he says remind them to avoid quarreling. The followers of King Jesus should not be known for their love of fighting and quarreling. In fact, Paul told the Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Being a cultural warrior um, does not fit this sense of, at least in some manner, depending on how you're speaking of, cultural warrior. How, how difficult is this for us, especially when we're met by so many things that provoke us to anger, when we turn on the news, when we pull out our phones and read something, it just infuriates us. It's, it's really remarkable to me, to my own heart, concerning these things as well, how quickly we can lose it. When those who don't follow King Jesus act like it. And they're living in their own kingdom. We're just shocked that they would act like that. And we act out similarly. Those who live for a different king. May we not be among those followers of Jesus who are looking for a good fight to have while they're trying to make a point regarding morality or faith. Our hope and life in Jesus. Sixth point: Followers of Jesus are to be characterized by gentleness. The original word there is it really means not insisting on every right of letter or law, uh, of law a letter of law or custom. So not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. It's it's closely tied with humility. It certainly includes the sense of yielding to another, even when things seem like we shouldn't yield. Of course, King Jesus gave us the perfect example of this in his life when he showed that he was meek and he was gentle and lowly in heart and as one who did not return reviling for reviling when he endured the suffering on the cross. And friends, it's imperative for us to see that gentleness is not weakness in any way. Uh, a, A redefinition of gentleness might be weakness, but biblical gentleness is not weakness. In fact, it is a fruit of the Spirit. And encouraged repeatedly in the New Testament, just two examples among many, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 Timothy 6, but as for you, O man of God, flee from these things, these, these other things that we've been also speaking about this morning, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness, not just with people in the church, but the culture, people all around. Gentleness is a rare word today, at least it's not thought of in a great way today. To be characterized by the Christ-like trait of gentleness and exhibit the fruit of the spirit of gentleness as it regards especially one's cultural discourse risks the accusation of being a coward. But rather than exhibiting weakness or cowardice, it actually requires great strength and resolve and faith and a continual death to self, a purposeful consideration of others, and a humility that puts others first. As you yield your rights to a fight, put them down and entrust it to the Lord as you speak truthfully and graciously. Now, people in the culture and those inside the church might misread your gentleness as cowardice and and passivity. But I urge you to hear the voice of your Savior and Lord this morning and follow his example in your cultural speech. The way that you communicate, the way that you walk, the way that you move forward. This is not about being passive, it's about active gentleness. Seventh point, and last. Followers of King Jesus are to be characterized by courtesy. Paul tells Titus to remind them to show perfect courtesy toward all people. These are like important words. Perfect courtesy towards all people. Uh, When Paul says, again, all people... It's just not complicated who he he means. He means everyone, both believers and unbelievers alike. And the original word here is often translated as meekness. So it's a very similar thing to where we've already been. It's like he's just there's just different aspects of it. It's a courtesy, meek. It can be similar, again, to gentleness, but more specifically the quality of not being so self-absorbed or impressed by yourself, but rather showing the highest level of consideration towards another person, no matter who they are. And again, all people, friends and enemies alike. You consider for a moment how Paul and Peter both wrote to those who were suffering, these Christians, regarding this time during Emperor Nero's reign. It, 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 in all that he is stating and writing down for us in Scripture, we don't find one single negative word about the emperor. You read history books, there's plenty of negative things to say about Nero. What we see in Scripture by way of example of the apostles, of the early church, they never speak a negative word. Considering that this is the man who set Rome on fire and blamed the Christians for it, found pleasure in torturing and killing Christians, the fact that nothing negative was written about him is remarkable. And not only nothing negative, but instead the command in 1 Peter 2 again to actually honor him. It's just remarkable, and it may seem entirely backward, but as the Spirit works in us to conform us to the image of Christ, courtesy and meekness and gentleness and peace will increasingly be shown amid the most difficult of cultural evils we face. You know, amid the debates in the Christian culture regarding the supposed weak need desire to be winsome toward those in our culture as followers of King Jesus, speaking truth with grace and following the advice that Paul gives, this one professor, Michael Kruger, president and professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the school that Dan graduated from, Reformed Theological Seminary, he says this, we should be winsome simply because it reflects the kind of character that God asks us to have. Indeed, biblically speaking, it reflects the character of Christ. So whether it's 1822 or 2022, whether we are culturally favored or disfavored, whether it's an election year or not, we are to act like Christians. It should also be said that being winsome does not mean that one is weak, fearful, or lacking in conviction. To say we should be winsome is not to say everything a Christian should be. Christians should also be strong and faithful, even courageous and bold. But let us not confuse being strong with being belligerent. Nor should we mistake being bold with being caustic. The loudest and most aggressive people are not always the ones with the most confidence in God's word. and Ironically, behaving in such a manner makes this come across like we have a theological version of a Napoleon complex, always trying to make up some insecurity, whereas true confidence flows from a deep and quiet trust in God's sovereignty leaving the outcome to him. The big idea followers of king jesus engage with the culture steadfastly and obediently speaking truth with humble grace and gentle courtesy if that could just stay up for a little bit followers of king jesus engage with the culture steadfastly and obediently speaking truth with humble grace and gentle Courtesy And our attitudes and our actions that all stem from what we truly believe have a profound impact on those people around us, whether they're in our home or whether they're in the culture or whether they're in the government or wherever. Amid all the noise coming from any number of Christian and secular fronts regarding how we should interact with the culture we're in, may we look to Titus 3. Never forget to be submissive, obedient, intentional, encouraging, peaceful, gentle, and courteous with all people. Certainly we should pray for a great revival in our land, but may we remember that the revival or renewal we need most in our world and in the USA is the humble reception by the church of sound teaching about Christ that delights the heart, that really delights the heart, that Jesus really is who he says he is, and he is my king, and I get to live for him, and I get to walk with him, and I have the Holy Spirit filling me and strengthening me so that I can interact with grace. And straightforwardness, not shying away from difficult conversations, but having the difficult conversations calmly, gentleness, courteous, something that delights the heart, the the reformation of our lives, in our thoughts and our actions, and the revival of heart that comes from an outpouring of the Spirit who shows us the glory of God in the face of Christ. This revival that we are crying out for in our culture actually starts in our own heart and is sustained in one heart. one's heart amid all kinds of cultural engagement when one remembers the reason that we're called to live like this, the very reason the Spirit is at work conforming us to the image of our King Jesus. And here's where I read the rest of the text. Verse 3. Why do we do all this? Why? Why are all these things true? Well, because, or for, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and love and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And the, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Paul, speaking to a young pastor, So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Things like what we've been talking about this morning. Things that are excellent and profitable for people. May we be those who engage with the varying aspects of our culture. In our families, in our schools, in workplaces, entertainment, government. Obediently speaking truth in the appropriate places with humble grace and gentle courtesy. In the various spheres we've been given some sort of influence in. That we might, as Kevin DeYoung states in a really helpful um, review of a book, he says this, that, that, that we might model an alternate culture as the city of God trying to be salt and light among the city of men. One one more application almost as a benediction to this sermon kind of is, is this passage out of Colossians 4. Looking for application specifically in how where to, where to go with these things, or how, I think, I think there's been lots of application throughout, but let me, let me say this. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Colossians 4. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Pray that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be always gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. May we interact with the culture, with truth and grace, always the two together, not just one over the other, not one usurping the other, but two always together, interacting with the culture, not just the culture, but one another. I think this is true in parenting. This is true in marriage. This is true in your workplace. This is true all over the place. It just happens that it starts out by speaking about your rulers and authorities. So friends, apply this in your life, not just cultural engagement, but in your life.